welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everyone, got a great episode for you this week. So my guest is Dr. Alex Menes, and he's the founder and CEO of health tech company Motilent. And Motilent's mission is to change the way we see the gut. They've spent the last five years developing brand new imaging technology that's helping researchers and clinicians understand exactly how the digestive tract works. So Alex founded Motilent in 2013, um, basically to expedite research in his field of medical image analysis for GI disorders. But since then, Motilent's grown to working across a huge range of GI specialties and research, and they have their first clinically available product for Crohn's disease monitoring, and that's called GI Quant. So Alex has got master's degrees in biochemistry, medical physics, a PhD in MRI imaging. He spent two years on the board of an AIM-listed UK medical device company. And he even started life as a medical secretary. He tells us all about his background, all about the company and more in this week's episode. So enjoy. How you doing, mate? I'm doing very well, James. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a- no worries. No worries. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Alex? So I'm actually at my home because it's nice and quiet here, but normally I'm based around Oldsbury. Excellent. London. Oh, wonderful. What's the weather like where you are? I'm actually getting snow where I am down in Surrey. Yep, it's literally snowing and I'm wondering how I'm going to navigate the roads on my bike in about an hour. <laughs> nice. Cool, man. So um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Obviously, we know each other a little bit. I've met you a few different times at ID London and a couple of other events and various bits and bobs. So I know a bit about you and what you're up to. But for the benefit of our audience, mate, why don't you tell us your story? Um, so I'll give you an abbreviated history. I really come from a place of utter academic mediocrity in the beginning. <laughs> A-level. What an amazing phrase that is. <laughs> well, A-level's really hard. And I got into university back when you had to get a few C's. And I went to King's College to do biochemistry. And I kind of hit my stride towards the end of that. Took a year out, worked as medical secretary, which wasn't exciting, but it was hard. And Interesting. I did not know that about you. No, not many people do. It was at the Heart Hospital. And... I just don't think I've ever had to do as much work as quickly as I ever did in that job. But interesting. it was interesting to see the kind of the medical side of things. And I then thought I needed to upskill a bit. So I did a master's degree in translational medicine at UCL. Um, not satisfied with that. I did basically another master's degree as part of a PhD. I did oh, a bit wow. of switch out of, you know, wet science in the, in the lab and into medical image computing and I was fortunate to really find like a great, um, you know, investigator um, at UCLA. She was doing this gastrointestinal radiology and specifically looking at the GI tract. So his name was Professor Stuart Taylor. And I just looked at this imaging that we could do to see how the gut was working. I was like, that, that is what I have to go and study. So I dropped everything, um, not having any computing ability when I did a PhD in medical image analysis. And uh, oh, very cool. They forced me to do a master's to upskill a bit. And that was painful for everyone. <laughs> And um, the PhD went well, because I think it was nice and focused on a clear problem. And then during that, I started a, my business, basically as a consultancy. And um, things proceeded. And um, a few years later, I've now got this very small but interesting startup called Motilent. And the mission is to change the way we see the gut. And that is basically by looking at it directly with medical imaging, and mostly MRI at the moment to see how it works. And a range of conditions from Crohn's to constipation to YBS all of these different things. Very cool, mate. So there's loads that I want to talk to you about here, about your background, because you've gone from essentially, yeah, a medical secretary, which I think is super interesting. And I'm keen to hear all the stuff that you learned there. And then obviously then into lots of different academia, which has led you to where you are now. And it seems like you sort of followed your nose in terms of whatever you found interesting at the time, which I always think is a great idea for people, particularly when you're bouncing around in academia and and different bits, you've got that kind of flexibility. But let's start with the medical secretary. You said it was super hard work and you learned a lot, but it seems like you got bitten by the bug of health at that point and it sort of made you want to learn more. So tell me a bit more about that. I was curious. I think a lot of the time when you tell a retrospective story about where you've come from, it makes a lot of sense. Um, (laughs) But, you know, honestly, especially these days where people go to university straight out the gate, I think it's actually difficult to know where you're heading and what you're doing. And before I went to university, I actually did so badly my A-levels, I had to kind of take a gap year, but not in a Mm. fancy way. I worked at the home office in Croydon and 
just grafted for a bit. And I think my life's been often punctuated by these quite um, sort of random but quite officey type jobs where you kind of sit and take stock and think about yourself and what you're going to do. And I think that these kind of gaps were almost fire breaks between making potentially ill-advised decisions with education. But certainly the medical secretary type work was, it paid quite well, which was odd. Yeah. It was a brutally hard job of having to like type out thousands of letters and really kind of know quite a lot of technical jargon. You know, my Googling skills were. <laughs> and you ended up with a semi-education in Latin by the end of that yeah. as well, with all the medical words and stuff. Absolutely. And um, I think I, I just basically got to see this kind of very clear kind of pathway for how you know, patients were managed. And I'm, I was a complete outsider, of course, I'm not medically trained. But um, you develop an appreciation of kind of why you're doing tests and why you're kind of making decisions. And it's a very much a, if I do this test, it needs to be an A or B decision not something I just do anyway. And I kind of got this very loose understanding of, you know, how the, the kind of medical flow charts began to kind of work. And um, that's such a good vantage point for assessing that actually, especially, yeah, because you're getting, you're, you're literally seeing the, the test and results and what happened. So as you say, you're literally plugged right into the pathway and you've got these fresh eyes because you haven't got the kind of indoctrination of, of learning what the tests mean for from a medical perspective or anything like that, you're literally just looking at it in terms of a common sense pathway, which must have been, yeah, I can imagine, well, I guess from my point of view, quite liberating to have that, those eyes on it. But I guess from your point of view, it just seems logic, right? Uh, it's just cool. And, you know, great thing about cardiology, and this is going to offend people, but it's not solved, but it's very far down the, you know, the understanding, you know, kind of pathway. Yeah. We've got tests and we've got good therapies and we really just, you know, get it. And I think we're chasing a lot of the, larger kind of blood vessel type diseases of cardiology into microvascular type problems. And I think the, the, the heart is well understood. And it's, it's where I saw these tests like cardiac MRI and you can see these 4D flow type technologies. And I just, you know, remember just looking at it thinking, well, the medis- medical side of things is very exciting, but just the technology here is just so advanced and so exciting and so cool that, um, you know, to kind of capture my imagination at the time, probably too young and impressionable, but, um, <laughs> Um, so talk to me what's going through your mind then, right? So you're thinking, okay, this is quite interesting. I quite like this stuff. How did you pick what to do next? Um, well, as with most things, you know, picking is a bit of a luxury. I mean, I, I'd like to have gone to medical school and I didn't get in the first time, so I kind of gave up. Okay. You know, I, even then I wasn't sure that that was sort of exactly the right thing for yeah. me. I don't like basically doing what people tell me to do. Mm. And um, I think in retrospect, that was a good idea. But um, I was quite clear that I needed to probably not just stay doing what I was doing. And, you know, back then, master's degrees were quite cheap. And I applied to a couple and just looked to basically double down on learning stuff. And I saw a place like UCL. It was a great opportunity to get that ID card where I could go into the building and just meet all these exciting, interesting academics. That's an interesting way of looking at it, yeah. Got a networking opportunity. And the, the master's was great, and I got my first distinction, I think, doing that thing. But... Um, the main thing was just the networking opportunity. I did several different projects across that. And I was just like, yeah, this is, this is satisfying. I'm learning stuff and I'm meeting people. And it was good fun. Yeah. It's such a good point about network. You know, I think I've told this story a couple of times in this podcast, but I remember interviewing someone who said that they were really struggling to find a blockchain engineer and they were at Cambridge doing an MBA. And I was, I just said to the guy, like, you could literally send one email and you've probably got the the brightest and best minds in blockchain and engineering at the end of an email that you could send in like two minutes that you could acquire that email, that email list and just get that sorted. So I don't really take the point that you struggled to find a blockchain engineer in a, in a place of the minds of, of, of Cambridge. Or maybe he didn't find the blockchain engineer that he wanted specifically. Perhaps. Perhaps. Although he did text me when he was on the train on the way home saying, yeah, I've sent your email and three people have applied. So I was like, okay, fair enough. Um, so, so, t- so yeah, so tell me, I want to, I want to plot the path now from, from you with a thirst for knowledge to now having your own company and you know, this, this startup that you've got doing all the cool stuff that you're doing. So, what were the pieces of the puzzle that you put together, both from, I guess, an academic perspective that led you there, but also your entrepreneurial skills? Was that something you were born with, do you think, or did you acquire them over, over time? Um, I guess I've never really thought about it. I don't think, 
you set out and say, right, I'm going to be an entrepreneur today. I think it's a means of tackling a problem. Yeah. One that I gravitated towards, I think probably. Well, that's the correct way of doing it, in my opinion, and our opinion, probably. I think there are people that go out saying they want to be entrepreneurs without an idea of what they want to do. But no, I agree. That's definitely the right way around. No, so I mean, I guess in, in retrospect, it fits together. I think essentially with the, the PhD side of thing, I, I got, first of all, I got sick of working in a lab. I'm way too impatient. And the amount of times I was killing yeast en masse, trying to grow antibodies and this kind of stuff. Oh, sorry for the poor things. <laughs> very, very difficult work and difficult to get publications and difficult yeah. that kind of stuff. So I always quite like computing from a lay perspective. But um, essentially I saw what was, doing, what was happening in cardiac MRI back in, the, back in the earlier days. And then I saw that we were doing a lot of MRI in the abdomen. And I also had a passing interest in the gut-brain axis. Which is going back oh, yeah. To, you know, the old vagus nerve, the bits talking to each other. I do, but just quickly tell our listeners, for those so that don't. You've got a brain in your it's head. It's an easy cop-out for me, by the way, but now I don't have to explain it. <laughs> um, you've got your, your brain in your head, that we all know about, and then you've got the brain in the gut. Um, that's the enteric nervous system. And the two are connected together Why, you know, a couple of nerves, mainly the vagus nerve, so that you can basically sense things in your gut and you can, you know, feel things. You know, when you feel something, you're not thinking it, you're, you've got some kind of visceral, literally a visceral reaction. And that is felt in the gut and it's transmitted to the brain. You have a gut feeling or pain in the ass or butterflies in your stomach. All this kind of stuff is manifested via this gut-brain axis. And I think you've had a few people on the show that say there's lots of like, interesting aspects of immune information you know and modulate. correct yeah very cool stuff and we have literally no idea how it all works and people that say they do um, are either gifted beyond space and time or over <laughs> <laughs> that's well put yeah but you know it's rare that we have a five to seven meter tube that's you know so big and inside of us that we know so little about i think that was the, the mystery for me and why i quite liked it and I knew that with cardiac imaging and these cardiac tests that we could get to a place with a smaller, more difficult organ. And um, I saw this PhD where we were looking at MRI in the gut and I was like, well, let's, let's try and move the cardiac stuff on down a bit and, and see what we can do in the gastro space with this kind of technology. It's not like we had to reinvent the wheel here. It had already been done, sort of. And it was a case of um, reappropriating advances from other areas of medicine into an underserved but very interesting um, discipline. Very cool. So you came through academia then is basically the answer for how you got to be an entrepreneur in the sense that you, you were on this academic path, you were following your interests and eventually you came across a problem that you wanted to solve, which was this lack of understanding around the gut brain axis, i.e. we have gut feelings for things. What on earth is that? I need to go and figure this stuff out and, and solve some problems. And you're right. We have had a few people on that are trying to tackle this um, in, in various different ways. And as you say, through immunomodulating all sorts of cool and exciting stuff. So let's talk about Motilent then. So tell me what it is you are doing with your startup company. Um, so during the PhD, I was developing software and the software just basically made some stuff a lot more easy to do when it came to analyzing pictures of the gut. And I basically had a choice and that was to, um, broadly like give the software out, but it was so janky and cobbled together from stuff that other people had done that that wasn't really an option. And I thought the better way to actually structure the development of the field more than anything was to set up a small consultancy around this and just help people do good research. And the people that were coming to me weren't, you know, software engineering geniuses. There were a lot of clinicians that were saying, look, I've seen this thing. Can you help me analyze it a bit? And if you give them something, the command line or something that's has to run on Linux or something like that, they're just going to run away from you. Um, very mm. And I wanted to really help and enable people to do you know, cool research really, rather than, you know, start, you know, running a business per se. Yeah, yeah. But very quickly, I realised that we get fragmentation where this thing begins to happen. If you if you're not careful, people come up with loads of different metrics. They all do their separate science projects. They all publish an abstract here, an abstract there, with a different metric or a different like way of doing it. You get a huge amount of fragmentation in the field, and you don't build that critical mass of evidence. And I think Motilin was born out of my idea to help streamline how we were researching gut with medical imaging. So a very niche application. And where I could push good people through to kind of do homogeneous research in this area. And I think, you know, the company is 
back then did not look particularly um, like a great money spinner, but mm. we had a lot of interest and we had some really great groups and there's people up in Nottingham, for example. So Robin Spiller is one of the godfathers of our area, but he's got a whole you know, team of people underneath him that have been incredibly active in this research area and have like really like, you know, used our tech to help them kind of do some very exciting research projects and constipation. And sure. Our areas. And I think that giving them the tools to do this job you know, help them, you know, win some very big, uh, big grants and do some good research. And it's helped us kind of, you know, stay alive long enough to kind of really get our story straight um, as a company and work out where we can actually fit this technology into a clinical pathway, which, you know, took the best part of five years to kind of really. Um, Got it. So if, I'm, so if I'm going to summarize then, so <clears throat> if, 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 correct me if I'm wrong here, but so you started off as basically a consultancy that was helping these different groups, be them groups of researchers or be them groups of clinicians, but you were helping them do research into the gut and you were providing them support to do that. And were you providing them technology as well? Yeah, I mean, it was technology, but also a lot of emotional support. It's kind of a hard area to research. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> and so, and the technology that you were giving them to support, just going to detail on that for me so what's the i guess what's the innovation here right because then you turn this consultancy into what it is now so just talk me through that what's the technology innovation here specifically well there is you know there's now a bit of a fleet of technologies but the, the cornerstone of what we are known for is um essentially a image registration and it is looking at how um moving time series of the gut you know for example peristalsis and these contractions and I can give you a link so people can just see this and make a bit more sense. Perfect. I will stick that in the description of the episode. So if people want to click that now, they will see it. So you can actually see the, the gut moving around and that is really chaotic and random and difficult to eyeball. You can say it's moving or it isn't, but um, specifically you made technology that quantified how that gut was moving so that you could see, you know, not just how it was, but you know, what was the size of the contractions, the amplitude and all that kind of stuff. And um, that quantitation of how the gut was moving was a nice step forward for, you know, how we actually look at the, the digestive tract in general. Okay, so you're helping with the visibility of what the gut is doing in, I guess, well, real time, but then obviously you can look at it retrospectively. And that's allowing people to, I suppose, as you say, research it initially, but is that helping with then diagnosis and things now? Well, I think this is the, the big issue in healthcare in general. Um, it's all good and well having a test that can say, look, here's something cool. But if you haven't got a, you know, a therapeutic option to actually do something with that information, it's just not. Right. And we have got a slew of exciting applications of this in like gastroparesis and people with like nausea. You know, I think constipation affects about one in hundred people in a fairly kind of severe way. And, you know, we've seen fantastic things and we talk about that, that later, but you know, no one's getting an MRI for those disease indications. You know, it's just not going to happen. And, even if they did, there is not a treatment or a clear um, decision that you could make. And that's because it's a super expensive test. It's not a, a symptom which is going to evoke enormous harm necessarily. And it's not an indicated test for those things for those reasons, right? Uh, well, let's just, let's just unpack that and turn, turn this around a little bit. So um, is MRI expensive? Like how much do you think an MRI costs? If I was going to pay privately for an MRI, what, three grand? Uh, no, it's about a grand privately. Okay. But the NHS reimbursed cost is about 250 quid. Um, I think a couple of hospitals that we're looking at, cheap as 130 in other centres. And, mm. you know, it's not that expensive. I think one of the big misconceptions is that it's a vastly expensive test. And in the US, you can spend a lot of money. But um, here, most body parts are, you know, high hundreds, low thousands privately. But when you've got a properly set up centre, you'll be able to kind of do these things uh, relatively inexpensively, especially compared to other tests like an endoscopy where you've got a lot of the sure. generalization. So that's point one. Regarding constipation, so, you know, this is a bit, you know, all of our conversations in the company quickly start talking about poo, so I should get, get over it, shall we? And, um, <laughs> you know, so what, what does constipation like mean to you clinically? I mean, when you've come across it and... Oh, just all sorts of problems from abdo pain to even fecal vomiting and uh, yeah, loads of stuff, inability to pass urine, even all sorts of stuff. And there's, there's constipations from like ileus in, you know, post-surgical opioids. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of the constipation that we're specifically interested in is, you know, 
the idiopathic forms of constipation. You know, there's, yeah, I, th I think the numbers are about one in 10 people have, you know, clinical constipation, about one in 100 have intractable constipation. And it's, you know, it's not really about going to the toilet or not, that's the, the end point, but it's the abnormal pain and the bloating and the people mm -hmm. that can't live a normal life. And you can, in, well, not you, but a clinician can discharge them and get them out of clinic because, you know, they're probably fine. But they go back into the community and they don't live a particularly good life and they're not particularly mm, I see. But the problem is not that there isn't a problem, it's that the problem cannot be captured with the metrics we use to assess healthcare outcomes. And I think that's I think what I'd what I'd say in that area. Um, but it's also from a, a research perspective, an interesting phenomena. Constipation is not all the same. Um, there's a lot of talk about it being quite an early warning sign of neuro neurological problems. Yeah, another good point. Yeah. And it's multifactorial, but the only way we can develop drugs for it is by asking people about pain and bowel movements. And there's been a huge slew of failed um, you know, drugs at 2A, 2B, because we simply can't characterize the phenotype. Ah, oh, I see. So now it gets interesting. So you can stick these people into a scanner. You can see what's going on. And I suppose it will inform lots of decision making around their treatment and also i mean potentially is that information then could that get back to pharma to then inform certain drug choices and different things about side effects even i mean is that is that an option yeah so i mean i think this is exactly what got me into the field in the first place is this exact kind of question and the answer to all those questions is yes and i think it's it's very cool and we've seen you know interesting phenomena like People with constipation have lots of contractions that seem to be pushing in the wrong direction. So it's like they have an arrhythmia of the colon. And then the treatments give them a prokinetics and you speed Good up term. the um, some people just have a static colon. And you know, this kind of stuff is fantastic research fodder and it's very exciting. But um, you know, this is not what we're hitching our cart to, you know, today when it comes to the business as well. And I think before we it's very easy here to kind of head off into the exciting <laughs> Yeah, into the realms of the possible, yeah. Because, you know, focusing on the clinical outcomes, we, whilst we continue to do a lot, most of our work in the more functional area of gastrointestinal disease, our main actual application that we settled on is Crohn's, so inflammatory bowel disease. Yeah. And um, I think the reason for that is most junior doctors now, even if they're not speciality, would be able to tell you what Crohn's is and what the care pathway is. Yeah. Very, very well laid out. Um, so just for those that don't know, Crohn's is an inflammatory bowel disease. Um, it's not IBS, it's IBD. And so it's, you know, there's a distinction. And patients often in their teens and early 20s get diagnosed with this chronic inflammatory bowel condition. They will get periodic inflammatory flare-ups where they'll double up and end up you know, in the toilet for days and present at A&E. And while the diagnosis is not always the hardest part, it's that kind of roller coaster of flares to remission to flares to remission that'll take place over the rest of their life. It's very challenging. And, um, you know, the problem here is was that, you know, the drugs are quite good these days, but, you know, we, we've moved away from some of the older style drugs, um, thiopurins and et cetera, into these biologics. The biologics are, you know, fantastically uh, expensive with quite a high failure rate. So I think the numbers are around 50 to 60% of patients on these drugs fail a year. So they're taking a drug that isn't working and it's costing five, 10, 15,000 pounds a year. And the bowel's getting worse and, you know, just the payer, the patient, the practitioner, all of them are not happy with this particular situation. And the key thing is that if you could say the drug isn't working, you'd do something pretty sharpish about it. You'd switch them, you'd, you know, escalate the drug, you'd go send them for surgery. But there just isn't the test in the right place. And that's where we've plonked our tech into the care pathway to kind of help detect non-responders to inflammatory um, medication. Interesting. Okay, that makes sense. So, so who pays then? Is this is this the hospital? Is it the provider? I mean, how are you guys getting reimbursed for this? Because I can see actually that this obviously makes a huge difference. Because as soon as people stop responding to immunotherapy, the sooner you can find that out, the better. So, I imagine it solves a big problem there, and actually solves a lot of potentially expensive and also horrendous for the patient issues down the line so yeah so how are you guys getting reimbursed for this and where have you got this set up uh, so it's early days um so we've we're, we're done a first rollout now to a few different um nhs hospitals um, congratulations yeah no it's, it's, it's we're getting there 
the nice thing is we're not getting much pushback on the pricing. Mainly, maybe we're just you know, <laughs> horrendously priced it. I think you can <laughs> <laughs> it's always too cheap when that's happening. That's happening. The, the key strength of you know how we've actually addressed this problem, and the reason I don't think we're getting a lot of pushback just yet um, from clinicians in this space is that we've been very specific in exactly what we're doing with the technology. We're not just grading Crohn's disease. We're looking at small bowel Crohn's. And we're not just looking at small bowel Crohn's. We're looking at active small bowel Crohn's. So when that patient presents, we are saying, yes, the disease is bad, and then we can track them going forward. And I think it's being very specific in exactly how you're using the test. Um, that gets you know a lot of buy-in from from the clinic. You're absolutely right. It's being ridiculously specific on the problem that you solve as well, and by doing that, you know exactly who to talk to. You know exactly who the decision maker is often, and at least it is then one person or a couple of people's decision to make, rather than you guys saying, "Oh, I want to put this in the entire care pathway for all inflammatory bowel disease, whether that's Crohn's." ulcerative colitis blah, blah blah it's going to sit at this bit and we're going to put everybody through it and you're sort of forcing quite a big decision there with quite a lot of money going to and a lot of tests and a lot of change to the pathway whereas it sounds like what you're saying is like hey we've analyzed this entire pathway and we've seen that we can add specific value when we're looking at small bowel Crohn's active here to this type of patient we can see when the bowel is going to fail and then it's going to produce you these results down the line in a specific patient I mean that seems to make a lot of sense to me in terms of communicating your eye proposition so I'm not yeah I'm not particularly surprised that it's, it's because you've done your diligence to be perfectly honest and you know exactly what problem you're solving yeah and there's a, there's a few nice to haves on top of that as well um so you know, the key ones are we completely and utterly respect the role of the radiologist in the care pathway and we, we want to make them better. We don't want to get rid of them. So yeah. the product itself is as stupid as we could possibly make it in terms of how it works. There's no cloud. We don't talk about AI. It sits in the hospital pack system and shows up on packs and it will automatically intercept the data from packs and push the results straight onto the packs workstation. So the radiologist just sees our results next to all the other scans or all the other images they do as part of that. Right. So there's no logging into stuff. Um, there's no moving desk and there's no, like trying to find a spare hospital computer to kind of access some cloud-based thing in any NHS hospital is next to impossible. So it's very <laughs> that we limit the functionality in some ways just to make sure it's super slick to interact with. And I think that's one of the key things. But the other neat thing I think that I hope, it, who knows what, people are going to actually feedback but um the radiologist still needs to make the measurement so when they see a lesion so that at the for example the terminal island with the small bowel joints the large bowel that's where a lot of Crohn's is they need to draw around the the piece of bowel and that will take them about 30 seconds to do but they then quote the number in their report and that number can go back to the gastroenterologist who now gets a lesion specific score that they can track through time so there Got are other diseases like fecal calprotectin which is very generic generic but here a gastro can say, what's the GeoQuant score from six months ago? And it'll have gone up or it'll have gone down. And we've got a big wad of papers that say how that works and you know, its limitations and strengths. Yeah. But radiology, for the sake of 30 seconds more work, can now provide a number from their service that makes gastro want that service more. So radiology in theory can make more money through more business. We're not making them do loads more work. We're not making them grossly more efficient um, so that they have to do two scans for the, you know, for the same amount of like a clinic time. And I think it's just disruptive enough to be interesting, but nowhere near disruptive enough to annoy anyone and, you know, cause an overhaul of the care pathway. And that I think is, you know, again, suicide. And that last thing that you just said there, it does not require an overhaul of the entire care pathway. I mean, it just, it just sounds to me that you've, you've just got this pitched right. As you said, you're not mentioning AI or machine learning. You're not mentioning the cloud. There's, there's none of this stuff. It's just, I've spotted a problem and I've built a solution which will add value in the following ways, which I think is a really good message for people that are looking to innovate in a system which is super stretched and, you know, we can't get less efficient, even if we're promising to get more efficient down the line, you know, any change that we bring in is going to make us less efficient on the ground floor of healthcare. And so it sounds like you've really done your homework there. And I want to ask you next about, the, the sort of chicken and egg that often comes with getting a trial and getting evidence for something like this, because often, 
you want to get a trial, but they ask for evidence and you want to get evidence, but you need a trial. I mean, how did you guys get over that? And what's, what do you think the role of evidence was for you guys in kind of helping you make these initial sales and get this initial traction? And I suppose the health economics fits into all of that as well. Yeah. So I think this is a great question and I've kind of got my own personal philosophy on this um, and that is to attack it through academia and you can absolutely push back on this and tell me what you think, but it's all about the clinician, a radiologist or surgeon, whoever, but the, the clinical um, participant. Um, they'll, you know, a consultant radiologist, for example, will potentially make that consultant's post by their early 30s. They then have literally their entire life again as a consultant and they'll still be young to retire. Yeah. These are some of the brightest people out there and you've kind of, they're on rails through their training and they get the, you know, not the top, but they get to kind of like almost the end point. So early in their career, I think there's a lot of like mental capacity there that needs to go into other activities. And that will often go into teaching or it'll go into management or it'll go into private work. And some of it will go into research. And what I've done, what I love doing is research, you know, I mean, that's kind of where I come from. And I basically just found all the research clinicians and worked with them, helped them publish <laughs> a lot of good stuff together. And those research clinicians in their departments are seen as potentially the nerds or the people that like that kind of stuff. But they're seen to kind of guide and set the pace for new event in like new innovation. You know, what I've been very keen to do is, you know, do high quality research and don't be too worried about, you know, an overall agenda, but make sure that you're turning out high quality papers that are like comparable as often as you can and really bringing in people from the community. But the best way to get that clinical sale a lot of the time um, will be to kind of work constructively with the department, you know, and the technology to say, well, how would you use it? Let's set up a trial to do that. Let's publish a paper in abstract. And it takes a bit longer, but that kind of deep knowledge the clinician builds up with your tech um, essentially gets them, you know, familiar enough with it to at least kind of give it a go. And their colleagues will say, well, if this person that you know, spends a lot of their free time, their extra time on research thinks it's worth doing, then we'll give it a go as well. And I think it's that deep trust and it's the acceptance that by definition, nothing changes in healthcare. And if you accept that and work with the clinic, I think you can build a lot of deep buy-in and that is my approach. And frankly, no one bought a Da Vinci machine because the health economic evidence added up. They bought it because they believed in it. So, you know, I think you need to kind of work on the making sure that you're meeting the needs of your user. And I think that doesn't have to be expensive. Um, it just might take a bit longer than you'd like. And going in through the research angle is... You know, I, find it, I find it fascinating that Every I think every answer that you've given has been very measured, and I think this is this answer was was no different because you've taken a concept that I often talk about all the time at what now feels like quite a high level, just saying that people need clinical champions, and it's quite simple, it's quite standard, it's quite obvious that if you're a startup with a new bit of technology that's going to influence something in healthcare, you're going to need some buy-in from clinicians. And so you need clinical champions, but actually you've gone one step further and one stage further to rather than just blanket going, who are the, you know, the top people in digestive health or gastroenterology, you know, or whatever term you want to use and just blanket emailing a load of clinicians and hoping for the best. You've actually got some really niche, nuanced knowledge there because you've thought about it, and you've—I assume—you've asked a lot of people as to the, you know, the clinicians' training system and and all the rest of it. You know that clinicians <laughs> graduate in their early thirties to be a consultant. I say graduate, but become a consultant in their their early thirties. But actually, also this bit around, yeah, if we're interested in other stuff, it's going to be in management, teaching, or research. It's just going to be one of those three things. And with you being so research based and that's where your background is in academia you're naturally going to be able to speak to the people that do research easiest because you're going to share a common language but also that's your route into speaking about your startup too because you've got a research initiative so it makes complete sense that you're going to find those people and yeah you're going to send far fewer emails and you're going to get far more buying because you've just been laser focused on exactly who you want similar to your value proposition with the actual technology to be perfectly honest you've just been laser focused with who you actually want to get to and what it is you want to achieve. And therefore, I suppose you're going to be following a path of very little resistance when you're doing that because it's so measured. So actually, I've got a lot of time for that approach, mate. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it, I can't see any other effective way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, many, yeah, you're absolutely right. A lot of people try a lot of different things, I can tell you that, but that is the, that's the most measured I've ever heard it. 
no, good work. I'm glad I've got some. <laughs> you get these, you know, a lot of these, yeah, across the healthcare system, I just deal with radiologists all the time, and gastroenterologists, so these are the people that I know. Yeah. But they're, they're often ace in the exams and all the rest of it, but the number of times I've found people that they don't know how to write an abstract, for example, or do the stats. And they're like, I want to write this paper and I've got this feeling. But, you know, I see myself as not so much now, but, you know, a hardcore professional researcher thing, bang out papers, grants, you name it. And it takes me seconds to help knock an abstract into shape for one of these mm. people. They then can go and get all of that kind of stuff done. At Great Ormond Street, for example, we had a fantastic pediatric presentation that took the main stage and was sandwiched between plenary lectures from this um, fantastic young gastroenterologist who's now suddenly gone back to Milan. And that was, you know, relatively little work for you know, me to help with but huge impact for her career in the department. And that is the kind of stuff that I think moves the needle for clinical practice. And, you know, the work with Great Ormond Street, for example, has now moved on, you know, really reassuringly. And we can talk about that a bit later, but um, it, it helps through this kind of goodwill and collaborative type approach and making sure that your clinical parties are invested in knowing what's going on. Don't just come and tell them, here's the thing, here's the catch line, buy it, please. That will <laughs> never see success. <laughs> <laughs> very actionable advice for the entrepreneurs listening that definitely i like what you what you said as well about clinicians being the gateway i mean ultimately clinicians don't buy stuff but they do stuff and they influence stuff and actually you're right that 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 top clinician and in fact the clinical lead is going to have a, a lot of a clinical director is going to have a lot of influence as to what is bought and what people do and what clinicians underneath them will be using and doing and all the rest of it so it, it's a very good point that for something like this, getting that clinician buy-in is so important, particularly if you're dangling a carrot of publications as well, which particularly for senior registrars and those about to become consultants, I mean, they're going to be chasing publications and things to set them aside as, as having a niche and all the rest of it, which it seems like health tech is becoming a, a quite a, a, a good one to have. So I think, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting way. Yeah. It's an interesting way that you've done it. I think it is really measured and yeah, too. I do. I do really like it. I just want to move this on though slightly just to talk about a couple of other bits. I think as a company then you, you've obviously, I mean, you said you had a consultancy, so there must've been some revenue coming in other bits and bobs, I imagine from um, <laughs> various jobs and side jobs and bits that you, that you were doing. But in terms of, financing this company and you know financing it enough to build the technology giving you enough runway to attack healthcare with all the the delays and lags that we know and particularly in the context of you guys selling to the nhs i imagine that there have been some pretty interestingly timed sales cycles there of a few months at the time how did you go about financing this company did you raise did you bootstrap what was your approach to that so i did not want to raise um, angel certainly any kind of like VC funding until we had what I call product market fit and a healthy set of fundamentals i.e. cash flow balance sheet and P&L are all like looking healthy so that anyone with some financial acumen can just look at it and say that business looks good and I think that's many people tell you that's wrong in med tech and it's difficult to do and it is but I think that if you're doing something that's valuable you should be able to make it work as a fundamental business and it wasn't going to be able to happen easily if we took lots of external funding because I think the, the urge to push this product and undo all of the work that I've been talking about with research and hearts and minds would be jeopardized if we took funders that weren't sophisticated to really understand the way that you know these, these products need to be dovetailed into clinical practice. So what did I do? I broke out the keyboard and I started writing grants and grants and grants and you know string of failures but obviously hardened by my earlier life's inability to kind of a get good grades and do that kind of stuff. I just kept, mm. had a breakthrough with the NIHR and they awarded us an I4I product development award, which covered our costs for two years and allowed me to see mark and build GiQuant Clinical, which is the product that's now gone to market. Um, I met another good investor whilst I was working on the board of a public company who was kind enough to give us some seed capital, which um, we didn't actually put that capital work. We didn't need it until, you know, relatively recently where we've had to kind of, um, get some more grants in, but long story short, we've bootstrapped, we've made revenue and we've really kind of worked hard to kind of keep our run costs as low as we can possibly get away with, because we know that we've got to potentially look at 10 year life cycle on this kind of Good for you. Non-equity funding, mate, grants, wonderful. 
wonderful, wonderful, wonderful forms of capital if you can get them. And as you say, strings are phased because yeah, people just apply for grants. All Pete, you're always applying for one grant or another, right? I mean, you, you should be in what you're doing. But I think, you know, for, for getting that stuff over the line, it is absolutely invaluable, literally. Um, I want to talk to you. So, yeah, the, you mentioned medical device at some point. So are you guys CE mark? Are you looking to get a CE mark, FDA? Tell me about being a medical device and what you're sort of going through in terms of getting that stuff done. Yeah, so I noticed you had uh, Hugh Harvey on the podcast a little while I ago. I did. That's one of my most listened to episodes, despite being relatively recent. That he's good value. I've never spoken to or met him, but you know, I like what he says. And essentially, I'm going to say an abbreviated thing: that quality with the big Q is a cultural thing in your company, and you have to have the mindset that we're going to make a medical device that's rock solid from the start. We're not a tech company; we're a medical device company. Mm. Everything that we do is covered by an SOP and people working to it, and they're updated. When we hired, the first four people were hired, two were basically regulatory and quality. We had one technical person and me who was basically- oh, Hugh would love that. <laughs> <laughs> and we made life really hard for ourselves. We had this spectre of the MDR on the horizon from yeah. the now. And we just said, right, we're gonna go hard, and we're just gonna make a class 2A device out the gate, and forget about class one, self-cert, and all that kind of stuff. And we went through hell with the <laughs> and the timeframes and you know, we, we got a really nice response for the regulatory assessment of GI quant, but it was six months before they actually gave us a certificate that allowed us to go and, you know, consider selling the thing. Mm. The, the time frame was just huge, but you know, I believe that we need to make a medical device if we're going to actually do anything in the clinic. Um, and I basically set the company up to achieve that one goal. And I think it really, in a lot of ways hurt the technical development of cool stuff in the company but my attitude is the clinic doesn't need cool stuff it needs things that work and can test the hypothesis and i think quant it being in the clinic it's going to be used hopefully by lots of very very clever um, clinical people and they're going to find applications for it and i think this notion of perfecting the product then see marking it and then having massive uptake I think it's difficult to realize, and I think the advantage of software is we can actually do quick iterations in the grand scheme of things um, with the product. And I'm quite satisfied with that decision at the moment, even if it makes us a little bit, um, and rightfully slower in terms of how we develop new tech. And good for you, but good for you, you know, I mean, that's, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, that's literally what Hugh was saying on that episode, right? Is that actually, it is going to take about 20% of your resource as a company, but do it from day one. And it's only going to take 20% of the resource going forwards of your company. If, you know, if you get into a situation where you've got to backdate and do all this regulatory stuff just before an audit, you're absolutely screwed just because you're just going to have to devote so much time and effort and panic and blood, sweat and tears into, into getting audited that it's going to be an absolute nightmare. So I think one thing, one thing that seems to be coming through for me here, you know, speaking to you, Alex, on this is that one thing that undeniably that you have is focus uh, and whether that's focus around the value proposition, whether it's focus as, as to what you're concentrating on with the company, i.e. here, you said, I am going to be class 2A. I'm not going to have another conversation about what class it's going to be that we are going to put these two hires in to get this. So, you know, it seems that whatever it is along these lines, you've got utter focus, which is seemingly stood you in good stead to building what you've built. I mean, is that something that you'd agree with? Do you, do you appreciate the, <laughs> the, uh, the sentiment there that I've labeled you as someone very focused? Um, I don't know. It's good to hear it from you because you've spoken to a lot of people. I think I'm so head down with this. I've got no idea where I stand. <laughs> you're so focused that you've got no time to consider whether you're focused. <laughs> How meta is that? That's good. Well, I mean, probably, but I think it's, for me, it's been a very case of joining the dots and not, and you know, just really listening closely to the people that know more than you, and just basically doing what they say. If you've not got a better answer, I think is, you know, how I've kind of worked this, especially with the, the clinical angle. But yeah, I think I'm a bit focused. I mean, the company's quite focused, but I think <laughs> when you've got resources, oh, I like it, I like it. Um, you mentioned Great Ormond Street. Tell me about that. Yeah, so one of my favourite hospitals, I think, just. The working with the kids factor, I think, especially with Crohn's, like they get four-year-olds, three-year-olds with like Crohn's disease and stuff. And, you know, the younger you can, you know, with, in, the, in the sense of chronic diseases, if you can get in early in someone's life and like get them on the right track, the, the lifetime kind of quality of life add for that patient is huge. And I've worked in adults a lot, um, 
you know, all my career. And I just basically came across the Great Ormond Street option and um, met a fantastic radiologist Tom Watson there who's, um, you know, been interested in our tech. And essentially they, they wanted to see some research work and I met with all the gastros and people there. So like, here's what I've done in my career. What do you think? No business chat at all. It's just all the papers we worked through bunch of information, um, you know, scientific stuff. And they were all like interesting. And Tom was like, well, let's give this a bit of a spin. And we did some research work. Um, hopefully we'll know what's happening with that paper by the time this podcast comes out, but really nice few abstracts and just this kind of can do attitude. And, you know, this is a bit cynical, but if a gastroenterologist can scope a patient and see what they want to see, they're going to do that because that's their business. And I think in America, this is going to be even more true. But there is a real, believe it or not, and this is going to sound utterly crazy, but people don't want to scope children if they don't have to. Yeah. Um, you know, remarkable. And imaging, especially if it's non-ionizing, so MRI and safe, is something that they, you know, they get very interested in. That's a good point. Of course, our technology doesn't need IV contrast agents, so gadolinium, so you can drop all that if you want to. And you can do potentially a 10, 15-minute MRI scan and get this full, you know, mapping out that that kid's pathology you know quickly the parent can be down the head end of the scanner and reassuring them and it's just you know you know the product market fit question is you just feel that jigsaw piece slotting into place especially these vulnerable kids that have got lifelong conditions they're very expensive you have to anesthetize put them in a hospital bed and if you can replace even part of that with a quick non-invasive test you're winning and i think that you know that revelation that that was you know that was an opportunity there it's kind of what really, um, you know, focused me on the, you know, not just gosh, but the pediatric angle in general. And it's been very, very satisfying. And of course, the Crohn's just barely touches the size of the interest, the amount of kids that show up with random gastro problems, you know, these pediatric gastro and disorders, I think is increasing referrals to radiology at the time of this. I think so it's, you know, it, hopefully it's this new dream that I have playing out that if you give them a piece of technology they'll find applications for it quickly it just needs to be there and it can't be there without the c mark the c mark can't be there without the company being vaguely solvent and stable in of itself so all this stuff fits together i think it's just about lining up those those bits i love it i it, it definitely feels to me you know having done pediatrics it definitely feels to me that that's a very 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 good value proposition market whatever you want to call it and you guys getting product market fit there makes complete sense to me because as you say people don't want to unnecessarily hurt or harm kids and endoscopies are horrendous <laughs> for, for adults they, they are not pleasant to um to do to see to to have that they aren't pleasant procedures whatsoever even with sedation and all the rest of it, which again, if you have to do in kids, it's just giving drugs to kids. Nobody particularly wants to do that either. So it does make a lot of sense to me. I mean, do you see the day where this does take a lot of the endoscopy work? I obviously can't replace it completely just because of the necessity for things like biopsies and things yeah. and, and all the rest of it, which, you know, you know, the direct eye view, which you can get with endoscopies. But do you see the day where this technology does become an, uh, wider spread and actually does take a lot of that endoscopy work, both in adults and children? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's really strange to, that I always get this kind of, you're competing against ultrasound, you're competing against endoscopy. Like, yeah. it's, you've got to use the right test for the right job. If you want a whole gut look at the physiology and the anatomy, and you want that, that view to be stored in perpetuity on your packs, you're going to use MRI. Yeah. If you want to have a quick look, you can use ultrasound. If you want to be therapeutic and look at, you know, subtle disease in the lumen of the bowel, you're going to be doing endoscope in an endoscopy for it. And I think it's when you get endoscopists heroically trying to get two feet inside the small bowel, you know, I don't think that is necessarily yeah. the right use of the test. And yeah. if you MRI to look at supple sigmoid disease, you know, that's also the wrong test. All the gas and the movement and all that kind of stuff is very hard. And I think it's just about getting the right test. But what I will say is that you don't get clever. Well, rephrase that. <laughs> not sexy and you do not get all the people the young kids that want to work in the heart and the brain and cancer don't all flock to gastro generally and that means there's a bit of a paucity of great physics and great tech working in image acquisition within the within the guard recently though we've been starting to work with a few very you know gifted people like you know name drop jennifer steeden here 
um, who's based over at Gosh. And she can do these incredible cardiac acquisitions where the whole heart volume can be done in fractions of seconds. And we're going to get to a point in the next 10 years where you'll be able to do a complete virtual physiology MR of the bowel. And you'll be able to look at the movement, the length, the diameter, all of this kind of stuff. And with AI bracket, um, you'll be able to do it very quickly and automate, automatically. Enough. But I think we're going to, moreover, rediscover an area of medicine through this technology. Um, I don't know if you recall barium follow-throughs where you'd... I do. Yeah, so you'd tilt the patient and you'd see things moving here and there. And this is just for the listeners. This is where you actually um, use x-rays to look at the presence of uh, contrast agent in the lumen. that You squirt up the patient. You can see what's happening in the bowel. That uses radiation and it's messy and people don't like it. But the, the information you could get from how things were moving and what they were doing was you know, spectacular. And a lot of surgeons and a lot of sort of bemoan not having that information anymore. And I think we're going to be able to bring that back and make it, you know, very quick, cheap and easy to have that, but quantified, I think, going into the clinic of the future. And I think there's going to be a big, and I don't want to talk about this too much, but IBS, this big cluster of random different conditions that manifest as IBS, I think there's going to be big chunks of that population where MRI may well be sitting higher up the care pathway and triages people into, you need this drug or you need this behavioural intervention or you need something. And I think it'll be, that would be possible because of this this technology. Um, so it will not compete with endoscopy in that sense. I love it. What a great note to end on. Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, dude. I've, I've, I always say this, that I've learned a lot, but I, I really have learned a lot about the importance of, of being super focused actually is, is one thing I'm going to take for the, from this. And, I, and, you know, I think perhaps refining some of the advice that I give to startups around clinical champions and actually going into the detail that you've done, I think is super important and to get, get, you know, from getting those right people on board to actually making sure you're doing the right things at the right time with the company. It seems that focus is, is something that came up a lot and I'll definitely take forward from this. So I really appreciate having you on man and I'm sure we will stay in touch, but to let you know how we finish these podcasts, I'm going to hand back over to you to just summarize a little bit about yourself, a little bit about the company and to close us out with any asks that you've got of our audience. So by all means, sir, take it away. So pleasure to have been here. Thank you so much um, for having me. So my name is Alex Mendes and I'm the CEO of Motilin and our mission is to change the way we see the gut. We are in the clinic with our first product and we've just got two massive new grants to look at a range of digestive problems through medical imaging in children, in adults, in a range of digestive diseases. So if you're technical, if you're physics, or even if you're just interested, it'd be great to hear from you. We are hiring and I think that's the main shout out I'd like to put in. Perfect. And for people that want to get in touch with you, Alex, what's the best way for them to reach you? Um, LinkedIn is good. Yep, Perfect. Go awesome. I will put the link to Alex's LinkedIn in the description of this episode, as well as that link to the video, which I'm sure many of you will have already clicked on, but I'll put that link in there as well. And yeah, all the links to Motilin and all the usual stuff. So Alex, thank you so much for coming on, mate, and we'll catch up soon. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.